Welcome to the Waterways World Podcast, brought to you in association with ABC Leisure Group, operators of higher fleets and marinas around the UK. Hello and welcome to the Waterways World Podcast. I'm Bobby Cowling, the editor of the magazine. In this episode, we are joined by WW's technical editor, Mark Langley, for a discussion on the evolution of canal boat design. Mark's passion for boats and boating goes back to his childhood when he would accompany his uncle on trips along the River Great Ouse aboard his Norman 23 cruiser. So enamoured was Mark with these experiences that on his seventh birthday he received a subscription to Waterways World. Honestly, that's true. And by the age of 12 he was working at a hire base on weekends and school holidays. He began writing about inland boating in around 2000, and six years later he came to work for WW, where he continues to provide much of our new boat and boat owner advice content. Given his long involvement with leisure boats of all shapes and sizes, Mark is particularly well placed to describe the advancements in their design, from the basic post-war craft through to today's highly sophisticated narrowboats. So, let's listen to what he has to say. So how long has leisure boating been a thing on our canals? It's not really been that long, and it's really post-World War, because most leisure boating as such really originated on the Thames in the Victorian times and was very definitely a middle and upper class activity. Uh, because those who could afford to do it. And the canals were seen as dirty backwaters, which nobody really wanted to have anything to do with. Um, they certainly didn't have the idyllic image that we have now, and certainly following from uh, Tom Rolt's book, Narrowboat, um, published just during the war, and uh, his exploits just before and just after the war on the canals. Those are the things that started it. Although there were a few people who did build their own canal boats or took punts or rowing boats. But on canals, most canal companies actively discouraged anyone from using the waterways uh, for leisure purposes. And once we came after the Second World War, also it was very frowned upon by many of the canal companies, even though they were now nationalised, for pleasure boating to be done and it wasn't really until we get into the 50s and even the early 60s that pleasure boating started to be recognized as a, a viable use of the canal system as well and some of the independent canals and navigations were still very much against using pleasure boats they certainly didn't see them as a source of income but more of a source of irritation really the fact that they had to actually maintain things for boats to actually go through. Mm, indeed what did these early leisure boats look like so many of the early boats may have actually started from river boats so uh, thames launches that actually were narrow beam enough to get through onto the oxford canal may have actually ventured up there but a lot of the early boats certainly uh, after the second world war were not narrow boats as we'd see them now that many people bought old ships life rafts for example of which there were quite a surfeit of these after the second world war when a lot of ships were scrapped but also there were converted landing craft and converted pontoons, bridging pontoons used by the um, mechanical engineers for actually bridging during the Second World War. There were lots of these left over, and they actually made quite good 
um, camping boats or they could have a small cabin built on them. So they're often built of plywood or marine ply. And also the, the advents of available outboard motors uh, combined with the reduction in things like petrol rationing enabled those who are really keen to actually start getting afloat and actually cruising. And it's certainly very much a summer thing and very, very much a sort of back-to-basics approach. And what about narrowboats? When did they become kind of part of that leisure fleet? So there were a few conversions of working boats into um, private boats, plus, of course, some of the inspection launches that had existed from the canal companies were still around, and some of those ended up in private hands. But it really wasn't until into the 50s and onwards where people were buying ex-working boats as they came off the commercial runs and started converting them into boats for leisure. Uh, And often those conversions were often quite crude, using either masonite or oil-tempered hardwood, um, plywood conversions, um, often sometimes just having converting as camping craft, and, and certainly camping craft for many people's experiences in the 50s, 60s, and into 70s of actually getting afloat really cheaply with sort of scout groups, guide groups, and so on, being able to explore the waterways, where you still had a traditional back cabin, then an engine room, and then an open hold, which is clothed over, sometimes with another solid fuel stove in there, maybe a primer stove or two to actually cook on. When did um, GRP cruisers become part of the scene? So GRP itself was um, the wonder material that started to be developed in the late 40s. And the first yacht out of GRP was built right in the early 50s. And it was very quickly adopted for small boats because once you've made a mould, which is usually made out of wood, um, then you can actually start making a plug mould to actually then produce your boat you can start once you've done that expense you can produce lots of them and it became quite clear that you could build these boats really quickly and very cheaply at the time um so they started to appear in the late 1950s and into the 60s and 70s these are the mainstay of boats that go onto the canals because they were cheap enough for people to buy they were great as holiday boats but also they they were easily moved from place to place as well so people could trail them um so it's particularly on waterways that were derelict but also they enabled families to get afloat quite easily and didn't have the maintenance requirements that many working boats did, which were coming towards the end of their life. And certainly the the market for commercially built steel narrowboats, which at that point were often steel hulls and then with either wooden top or later on into the 60s and 70s, glass fibre topped narrowboats. So <laughs> when the superstructure is made out of glass fibre, those really didn't start becoming more common until in the 60s and 70s where people were thinking, well, actually, I maybe want to use a boat that's year-round suitable and is a bit more suitable for bumping into locks and scraping along the sides. So you mentioned a narrowboats with a glass fibre cabin. So um, there were several companies that built uh, steel hulls, which are quite easy to make. Um, and you obviously can vary the length as much as you want within the realms. And most boats were built around the sort of 30 to 40 feet length um, up until well into the, the um, late 80s or so. Um, the glass fibre superstructure was actually often made of three parts. There was a front part, a back part, and then you extended the middle part by as much as you wanted to. And this meant that you could actually produce quite a robust, watertight superstructure without the difficulties of actually building a steel version of it or having a leaky timber top. Um, so many companies, particularly things like Dartline and Shropshire Union Cruisers um, and Teddersley Boats, produced these for their hire boats because they could add novel features like sliding cockpits. So you could open the cabin roof up. So where you had, say, a, a seating area inside, that could be open to the air. And 
There are a number of ones produced by um, Shropshire Union Cruisers that were forward steer narrowboats that actually had a steering position under a sliding canopy so you could steer the boat from the front. And when I was in the higher fleets in the 1990s, we still had a number of these, and they were very popular with people. So you could either steer them from the back deck on a sunny day or, in theory, steer them from inside when it's absolutely teeming down with rain. Right. So a bit like, a bit like the cruises you find on the French waterways where you have steering on the roof and, and then... Very much like that. Why did they, if they were popular, why did they, why did we no longer have them? Um, partly the cost, it's actually cheaper to build in steel than it is to build in glass fibre. And when you build a superstructure in glass fibre, it has to have the same form every time. So it's very difficult to make tweaks. And then a lot of the external fittings would have to be timber or stainless steel screwed onto it. And over a period of time, glass fibre does actually start to deteriorate. Up until the 1990s, a lot of the way we built glass fibre structures was not necessarily in the most hygienic or dust-free conditions. And some of the resins we used actually actively absorb water, which can lead to them delaminating. So when they flex where people keep walking over them or moisture starts to creep in along joints, it can cause the glass fibre to, dis- to destroy itself. And it's actually more evident in the superstructures of say, glass fibre top narrowboats than it is for, say, a GRP cruiser itself. What were the facilities like aboard those early boats? Very Um, basic, I imagine. but Basic is probably an understatement. I mean, when Tom Rolt built Cressy, he actually fitted a bath to it, which could be filled with hot water, uh, which is incredibly rare. Um, I mean, even today, baths are not very common on, on all but the biggest and widest boats. So most early pleasure boats would have had uh, no heating at all. Um, if they were based on a narrow boat, they may have a solid fuel stove. But certainly the early cruisers, the, the lifeboat conversions, etc., would have often had a single primus paraffin stove, or as things like Caligas became more common in the 1950s onwards, then uh, bottled gas-powered cookers started to come aboard. Um, And, of course, one of the issues with paraffin cookers is they're pressurised and you can get very high flames. So it's not necessarily the safest thing to do. Um, And also no insulation on the boats. So the boats themselves would often have a lot of condensation, which is easy to disperse in summer, but it certainly makes cruising outside of the traditional boating season much more difficult. Mm. Also, there would have been very little in the way of facilities inside the boats, so toilets were literally the bucket and chuck it, uh, with the addition of some nice formaldehyde-based blue toilet chemical in there. And that really didn't change for a, quite a long time to the advent of porta potties. Chuck it where? Uh, well, quite often, dig a hole in the ground and, and bury it. Uh, so mm. dig a hole in the towpath. If you're thinking, well, otherwise, what many boaters would have done that time is chuck it in the canal. And in fact, many boats up until the, the early 1970s were fitted with sea toilets so both taking the flushing water from the canal and then discharging the contents back into the canal which just added to the terrible state that waterways were in in for much of the uh, century at some point narrowboats became the dominant craft on the waterways when did that change occur so this was very much through the 1970s into the 1980s so Certainly in the 1970s, the majority of the steel boats built initially went into hire boats. Um, so many of those then, as they became retired, go into private hands. And 
you can see the tail off of GRP cruisers through the late 70s and into the 1980s. And if you look back at Waterways World from the from the early 1970s, there's a predominance of adverts for GRP boats. And that then declines massively by the time you get into the early 1980s. And it really is with the advent of people being able to have more disposable income and spending longer on the water that narrowboats built up. And also the prices of steel boats became much more competitive uh, with GRP boats as well. And that certainly is the case now where GRP boats by foot length are far, far more expensive than a steel boat is. In the 70s and through to the 80s, I guess narrowboat design was still fairly basic. In some cases, it was fairly basic. Certainly for narrowboats, there were very much two schools of thought, one of which was trying to replicate the hulls of working boats and have very smooth handling boats. And so some of the likes of those boat builders like Colcraft that started in the 1970s are still with us and producing boats. Um, And there were quite a lot of boat builders who made the transition from building working boats to building leisure narrowboats as well. And there were quite a lot that had fantastic hulls, which then had a timber top on the t- uh, because that's what they was built on a working boat. Very few working boats had steel superstructures. And that's tradition still lingered well into the 70s. The other hand, you had people who were trying to build boats as quickly and cheaply as possible. So Springer narrowboats would come to the mind of many people, which started as a boiler manufacturer in the 1950s and 60s. And they had lots of folding equipment for their boats, uh, which were used originally to to fold the plates for boilers. And so they used to to fold their boats to reduce the amount of welding needed, which led to a very distinctive V-shaped hull narrowboat. And it's estimated that it produced well over 10,000 boats in their lifetime. Uh, nobody knows the exact amount. And amazingly, the majority of these are still in use and still afloat, despite the fact they were built out of quite thin steel compared to the boats we build now. Yeah, there's a lot of them about still, aren't there? <laughs> they are, and it's, it is amazing. I mean, they also did introduce, uh, as we move into the 1980s, the concept of the mini narrowboat as well. And that sort of revolutionised access to steel boats as well for people in the 1980s. Go on, explain, explain about this then. So at that time, if you wanted a, um, a, a Springer narrowboat that was, say, 40 foot long, the cost would have been about eighteen to £20,000, including VAT at that time, which, by the way, is about £45,000 in today's money. Mm. And they introduced a mini steel narrowboat. So this had, it was 20 foot long. It had four berths inside, a small toilet compartment. It had a two-burner grill and oven cooker, some, a sink with some hand-pumped cold water and it originally had two gas lights there followed by some fluorescent lights on later craft and that came onto the market in 1988 on sale for about seven thousand pounds which is about twenty thousand pounds or so in today's money and that became affordable for people and that then obviously encouraged other people to think well actually how can we get people afloat and in many ways the introduction of boats like that was the death knell for GRP cruisers, bar a couple of exceptions, on the canals because it showed that you there was both a market for and the ability to produce small boats that people could actually use and were quite affordable. And that for many people was, and still is, the rung on to boat ownership. Right. I want to go off on a bit of a tangent here because I know that you recently, fairly recently, moved from a GRP, sorry, from a narrowboat to a GRP cruiser. Um 
which is sort of contrary to to <laughs> to most people by the sounds of it. Um, what were your motivations for that change? Um, one of those is that I didn't really want to be spending loads of time maintaining my own boat because I spend quite a lot of time on other people's boats, which is a, a joy to spend people's. Sorry, it's a joy to spend time on other people's boats, uh, but it actually having my own bone, being able to have one that's not going to require constant painting. Uh, and also my other half did suggest that uh, I wasn't going to be fitting out another boat for a while. So it's probably a good idea to have a, a good quality boat that doesn't take too much work. Yes. But one of the other reasons is um, I'm based on the air and cold and navigation. And it's okay for narrow boats, but narrow boats don't really perform that well on rivers. And certainly when I go out into the tide lose or the tidal trent or go onto the Humber, then actually having a V-hull boat that cuts through the water that handles well and isn't that long. So my boat is 26 foot long uh, by 9 foot 2 beam. And that means it's got quite a lot of stability because it's slightly wider and it's not too long so it, it enables you to cruise those waterways without worry about having to run aground or make turns difficult um, and it's also because it's in Yorkshire it's nice to be able to do the steering completely from under a canopy when it's absolutely teeming down with rain yeah fair enough is there anything you miss about a narrow boat yeah I do miss having the additional space and actually having a larger bathroom I do miss on that um, and in winter I can't go cruising through ice on the water. So the canal section that I'm on on the air and cold navigation, that can freeze up, although thankfully now we've got lots of moving commercial traffic again that, that helps break the ice. But it does mean that my cruising is more limited than if I was on a narrow boat. Right. And it also restricts me from going on the narrow canals. So that means I have to uh, borrow or use somebody else's boat to go on the canal so at some point i will probably end up with another small narrow boat as well so i can keep going onto the narrow canals maybe you could get a 20 foot springer it has been tempted to do that and do a refit myself but because they were originally built in three millimeter steel which is very very thin by modern standards then they probably were going to require a quite a lot of bit of overplating the other point would be to possibly have something like a trailable grp narrowboat so something like a wilderness beaver or wilderness otter which actually then i could take to france as well well that would be fantastic we haven't actually specifically focused on the trail boats have we that, that's another i mean can you just for listeners who may not be in the know what what is a trail boat so a trail boat is a boat that you can just take out and put onto a trailer and tow behind a car. And, you know, considering most narrowboats are, you know, 15, 20 or so tons, that's not practical for most narrowboats. You need a low load and a crane. But small boats under about 25 feet or so, 26 feet depending on the car, um, and under about three and a half tons can be pulled by a substantial SUV. And so, you know, small 16-foot two-berth GRP cruiser could be yanked behind a car, even a fairly small car, and taken to different waterways. And actually, for people who are only going to spend a couple of weekends a year on their boat, that actually might be a much cheaper option to keep it on the drive at home and actually just put it in the water when you want to use it because then you save on the costs of license and moorings. Uh, and as many leisure boaters don't actually spend that much time on their boats, do you always need to have such a big boat? Um, it's some, certainly something that people should consider a bit more. Yeah, I agree with that. What are some of the big names in trail boats? So in trail boats now, wilderness boats are the main one that actually exists because they are flat bottom boats. Um, they they look like a narrow boat in many respects. They're tiller steered and they can have up to four berths inside them uh, with full standing headroom. 
And the trailer that they're on is quite well designed. You can actually use it as a caravan en route if you want to, because you can wind down the corner steadies. But there are other manufacturers. Some of the smaller Vikings and some of the Shetlands can actually be towed as well. But most of the trail boats now are from the second-hand market because there aren't that many um, boats built that are actually light enough to tow. Even some of the mini narrow boats that are built now are too heavy for a conventional vehicle to, to pull along because they're built of quite substantive steel. Right. Cool. Well, so a trail boat could be the way to go for some people, for sure. Absolutely. Especially if you've got space to store it and you've got a big enough car to pull it. And even some of the big hybrids and um, fully electric cars are quite capable of towing some hefty trailers as well um, and on canals and rivers trust waterways it then does mean that you can have an explorer license for example which is a set of 31 day tickets and that means it can be far more economical than keeping a boat in the water it also makes it quite easy to keep the main on top of the maintenance if your boat is shoved up on a trailer as well <laughs> Waterways World has been Britain's best-selling canals and rivers magazine since 1972. In each monthly issue, you'll find the latest waterway news, practical advice on boat buying and boat ownership, reviews of the latest craft and equipment, a pull-out cruising guide to help you plan your next trip, first-hand accounts of Waterways Live, and insights into the history and heritage of our canals and rivers. For subscription offers, visit waterwaysworld.com, where you'll also find a searchable magazine archive, our interactive Ask an Expert Advice section, and our boat search feature, the most comprehensive listing of canal boats for sale you'll find online. That's waterwaysworld.com. So you began working at the boatyard in the, was it the 1990s? Yes, it was. Where was boat design at then? So it was really starting to transition from being quite utilitarian in terms of interiors. So many boats were built along the lines of higher boats. So easy to surface interiors, uh, sorry, easy to clean interiors. Uh, you have um, lots of open shelving and a lot of berths in one space. So it wouldn't be unusual to have a 48-foot boat that had six or eight berths inside it. Um, in fact, my uncle did actually buy an ex-hire boat, which was a 47-foot, 12-berth boat, uh, which then converted down into a boat with a more reasonable number of berths in it. But things like bunk rooms with four bunks in it, um, recirculating Elson toilets or just simple dump-through toilets, the type that replaced the, the porta potties and the bucket and chuckets from the 1960s and 70s, and things like bigger central heating systems, better insulation started to become in. Uh, and also there started to become an influx of people who had more disposable income as well. So following on from some of the financial changes and people being able to buy their own houses, um, rapid rise in house costs that enable people to actually have disposable income meant a lot of people were coming on to the waterways instead of working their way up from, say, buying a very small boat like a GRP cruiser, then buying a slightly bigger one, then moving to a small old narrowboat, then a bigger one. They were actually starting to come in and just buy a boat straight away, having had not much experience. And also it's in the 1990s that we start to see residential boating taking off, partly because of that increase in the cost of living for houses, particularly in the southeast of, of the country and around London. 
that people started to think, well, actually, it might be easier and cheaper to live aboard a boat. Before that, it had been quite unusual to have large numbers of people living on boats. And so a lot of the boats, that's both secondhand and new, people were thinking, well, actually, this is a fairly cheap way to get afloat. And at that point, most boats were 40 feet long. That was the average boat length in the early, early to mid-80s was about 40 foot long for a typical boat. And when Waterways World built its own boat in the 1980s, uh, Cottingham, that was a 40-foot trad-style four-berth narrowboat. And by the time we get into the mid-1990s, we're into the 57-foot floating cottage. And that's where we've we've kind of hung around that go-anywhere-in-theory length of narrowboat with two plus two berths inside, which can be good as a cruising boat for a couple, but also can be pressed into living afloat as well. Yeah. There's some, uh, Richard Fairhurst believes that 40 foot is the maximum you need on a boat. Well, it is actually, you can fit a decent amount of space in. So when we look back to the boat that Andy Burnett and Chris Lloyd designed and built for Waterways World, which we recently reviewed on its 40th birthday, uh, and it's, it's still looking an amazing craft, that has very much the same layout as, say, a 57-foot boat in terms of the fact you can sleep two in a permanent double bed, two in, an, in a, the saloon. You still get a decent-sized galley and a decent-sized bathroom, and it's, it's a very capable cruising boat. And of course, the shorter the boat is, the cheaper it is to run. Um, but we seem to be quite fixated in the current new market about boats that are 56, 57, 58 foot long, sometimes going up to 60 foot if people don't want to do things like the Huddersfield Broad Canal or the Cauldron Hebble. Mm. And the maximum is what, 72 foot, is it? Or Yeah, 71 foot six. I mean, that you will struggle in some locks with that. So most people go for 70 foot plus the fenders hanging off the end. Mm. Um you know, otherwise, in some locks, you might be really struggling or catch fenders on on various bits and pieces, um, and you know that that's another matter about how people actually remember how to fit fenders so they don't actually catch on locks and they can actually have breakable links in them. Um, and that that is actually something that we we see with a lot of people coming in to buy really expensive boats because they've sold their house that's got a lot of value, is that they don't have very much boating experience. So there are things that build up with experience over time or how boats are operated and fitted that aren't in the collective consciousness of many boaters that come into the waterways. They have to effectively learn that the hard way, having spent a huge amount of money. Can you give an example of that? So, for example, specifying a layout that isn't really that practical. I mean, one of the common things we often see on boats now is shells being fitted that have no raised edges, no fiddle rails to it. So the moment you bang into something, stuff will fly off the shelves Um, i did a boat review a number of years ago where there was uh, open wine storage facing (laughs) forward and as the owners who had never set foot on a boat until they'd actually got the keys for this boat missed a lock by about three foot uh, and as they hit this uh, several bottles of merlot ejected themselves across the saloon smashed into the bulkhead and uh, well let's just say they had to replace the entire white carpet that was both on the whole side and the floor and as if white carpet is not that practical for no. a boat anyway no uh, but we also see things uh, that you know people don't think about how they're actually going to use a boat say in winter 
So the fact is they, they make it difficult to get into a gas locker, for example, having to crawl around a barrel around a crouch panel, um, or the fact that they don't think about how you're going to get on and off during the winter, or how you, you have so much stuff like satellite domes on the roof that it's hard to use a single mooring line for, uh, for handling a boat when you go uh, maybe for very temporary stops by locks without catching on things. Or they do things like mount the solid fuel stove on the wrong side of the boat, so it's more likely that if you have your boat uh, stove to port, then it will not catch on trees as you pass another boat. Yeah. Many boaters have designed to fit them on the other side, and many boat builders also now are not that experienced boat fitters. They may have done things like commercial kitchens and think they can make a large amount of money by fitting out boats. They get somebody else to do, say, the, the technical parts of the electrics, but they actually don't design boats that well. Right. And is there something that's come about recently, these issues, as, as the sector's become larger? It's it's happened gradually over the last 15 or so years. Um, and certainly boats have become massively more complex in terms of what they have inside them now. And for many boat builders, uh, that actually takes them out of their comfort zone. So as a boat in the 60s and 70s may have had a few lights aboard powered by a single battery, the fridge would have probably been gas or paraffin powered. Or if they had a fridge, hot water might have been by a a gas boiler. Those are things that boat builders feel quite comfortable with. But we've now got into a stage where we've got very complex electrical and power systems on boats. And that's often beyond the capabilities of many boat builders. So they have to bring specialists in to do that. So it's now quite possible for somebody to do the, the joinery part of a boat, but leaving all the specialist bits to individual contractors, which does not always mean that things are going to work out as well as they should do. Mm. What about technological innovations? The, the two really big innovations that have come on are the power systems on boats and certainly in the last five or so years, the propulsion systems on boats. I mean, if we go back to the 1950s, the majority of boats that had an inboard engine that weren't from the narrowboat working community would have had an inboard petrol engine or petrol oil engine. And the outboards were dirty, smoky, two strokes. Then we go into the 1970s and when Honda invented the four-stroke outboard motor, that revolutionized the propulsion for small inland craft. And then narrowboats started to take on board diesel engines that were becoming more common in not just vans, but also in road cars. So things like the, the British Leyland 1.5, 1.8 and 2.2 diesels, which actually have their origins as the, the Morris Series B engines in the 1930s. They were becoming more used in road vehicles and therefore they started being marinized and put into boats mm. and now we get into the stage where we've got diesel engines that generally come from um, light industrial plants but are actually being married up to generators to actually become hybrid drives or having pure electric drives and that that change has been significant one the the opposite effects is uh, in the 1980s and 90s it, the high-end craft that were traditional styled often had traditional diesel engines. So things like Russell Newby DM2s, um, Gardner diesels, 2LW diesels, and so on. And these were actually became less common because people were coming to wanting to live on a boat rather than actually being so much interested in the boats and the canals. I think that would be quite a broad brush assumption, but people are more interested in having more gadgetry on board their boat rather than actually what the boat looks like and we've seen that in some boats hull designs as well in fact that cramming as much accommodation in rather than having a shapely hull for example 
on the power side then is going from that having very little power that maybe one battery to now having systems that almost are like a size well be wiring systems where you just have so many complex systems you've got maybe 48 volts hybrid engine power supplies with a 24 volt and a 12 volt supply to the cabin 230 volt supply on demand so you can have induction cookers you may have backup generators uh, and all of this has proceeded at quite a rapid rate since when yeah, if you wanted 230-volt power in the 1980s, then you were limited to either plugging into the shore or you had a portable petrol generator. Mm. If you were very rich, you might have had a plumbed-in diesel generator, but they were incredibly expensive. Um, or you had some of the, the early inverters, which are actually electric motors turning an alternator, so they're rotary converters, which are horrendously inefficient. What do you feel about those innovations? Do you feel, do you feel that boating is more comfortable now and easier or do you have a kind of a look back with a degree of sentimentality (laughs) boating has certainly become easier and more comfortable in terms of how you're living on board a boat i mean the fact we can almost eliminate condensation inside a boat now with well-planned ventilation and insulation thermal break windows all those modern materials that we can bring to boat have certainly made them a lot more comfortable However, we do have boats with bow and stern thrusters that I'm sure working boatmen would have absolutely loved to have had. But it does worry me sometimes that some boaters have over-reliance on technology for them actually being able to handle their own boat. So it's not uncommon to see an inexperienced new boater using a bow thruster to finely angle their boat into a lock when really they should be doing that without using a bow thruster. So there are things that actually do... Uh, that that do concern me on the other hand boats are a hell of a lot safer than they used to be and that's something that has been a major change as we've had more leisure boats is actually the introduction of compulsory safety components much as people may whinge about it the fact if you look at a lot of boats from the 60s and 70s and the early 80s they were death traps Um, and you know the introduction of the well the, the the thames conservancy has had constructions and standards for pleasure boats since the 1930s and they were absorbed into what became the certificate of compliance in the 1980s which then became compulsory for hire boats and in the 80s into the early 90s the safest boats on the inland waterways were those that were hire boats uh, whereas many private boats were awful um, and you know people didn't carry fire extinguishers there was no ventilation wiring was absolutely appalling and as we become more technically savvy on boats actually that safety still hasn't quite caught up but at least there is some underlying standards and the introduction of the boat safety scheme um which then became compulsory for all craft on environment agency and canals as trust as well as british waterways board waterways that was really really important because it actually forced boats to be at least as safe as possible that you know if you moored up to somebody it wasn't going to blow up next to you or kill the (laughs) occupants yeah it's a nice thing to know isn't it that yeah it's um, toilet design has evolved quite considerably as well, hasn't it? <laughs> it certainly has. We've and got you to can't talk go... about toilets. You know that, Mark. Come on. Well, absolutely. And you can't get boaters together without talking about toilets. I mean, from the bucket and chuck it in the sea toilets, you know, the, the early portable flushing toilets, the porta potties, which then led into the cassette toilets, which did come around in the 70s, but didn't become popular until the 80s. And one of the things that's often happened is that when changes happen in the caravan and motorhome market that then filters down into 
boats, although often with a marine markup in the pricing is often the case. Um, I mean, early pump-out toilets came into two versions, one of which was the recirculatory toilet, which was a very large throne-like box, which was filled with um, blue formaldehyde-based compound uh, and some water, and it used that to recirculate the, uh, as the flushing liquid and they were powered by a bilge pump in the corner protected in theory by a screen and working in a hire boat company we used to draw straws for who was going to get a blue arm and unblock these because they regularly got blocked with either people putting things down there they shouldn't um, or just overloading the toilet system um, and distinctly unpleasant and also you know if you accidentally operated them whilst you were sitting on it you got a blue backside oh dear um, so then moving on to things like dump through toilets, which the contents just drop into the tank below, they became very, very popular and, and really were the mainstay of all the toilet systems, unless you had a cassette or portable toilet, up until the late 90s and early 2000s. And since then, macerator toilets have taken over quite a lot, either vacuum-powered ones, which are inherently complicated and noisy, or macerator toilets, which at some point you'll need to take them apart anyway. As with all toilet systems, unless it's a simple bucket, you are going to have to probably take it apart, give it a good clean and change seals and things like that. Mm. Um, but also composting toilets have taken off, although most composting toilets on boats are not true composting ones. They tend to be dry toilets because the material doesn't have long enough to actually turn to a compost, yeah. and that has issues with disposal as well. And there's a number of boaters who fitted them in the last couple of years who are now questioning, with disposal arrangements possibly changing in the future, are they going to continue using that? If you've got a place to actually do the composting ashore, then that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. But most boaters aren't going to want to carry around a couple of hundred litres a volume of waste toilet material decomposing gently. Mm, no, that's true. Looking to the future of boat design, what do you anticipate the uh, changes will be, advancements will be? One of the big ones is going to be how we propel boats. And as we've often discussed in Waterways World over the last couple of years and through the IWA and other people, is how do we make boating sustainable? So how do we actually think about what we're going to power boats by? Electrical power is probably the most likely, but we've got a huge amount of boats in the background. We're going to have to work out how we propel them. So things like hydrogenated vegetable oil, HVO fuel to power the existing fleet of diesel boats may be the way forward. What do we do about the petrol-powered boats? Do we move to a bioethanol route, which has in, uh, its problems in itself uh, with actually converting boats? Future boats are definitely going to have to be designed so that they have a life cycle assessment. So we actually look at what actually happens over a period of time. What do we do when they get to the end of their life scale? We have many boats that try and have eco-credentials at the moment, but then fail on things like ventilation. So they just put great big gaping holes in bulkheads and doors. Whereas actually you could duct and heat exchange air through those to actually get more effective ventilation and reduce energy consumption. And we've also got to work out what do we do about lots of residential boats that are sitting isolated on towpaths or only cruising for short periods of time. Is that an appropriate way that we actually use those boats do we provide moorings where they have access to mains electric so they can reduce dependence on fossil fuels mm. and how do we plan for the materials that are going to be used on boats so what type of wood are we using what type of insulation materials what type of paints because most of those have petrochemical bases to them at the moment and they're not necessarily environmentally friendly at all right and how owners maintain boats 
over periods of time, owners can make a big difference to how acceptable their craft are in terms of what they use aboard, what detergents, what paints, what greases, other lubricants, all those types of things. Boaters really need to have a, a more consistent approach to, and that probably needs a degree of enforcement as well. So but certainly boats are going to get more complex as well. There's definitely going to be a state where we're going to be looking at boats getting more and more um, automated, controlled, remotely operated um, in the future. As for the designer boats, we're probably not going to evolve too much in the terms of narrow boats. However, in the wide beam market, so for rivers and the wider canals, there's probably more scope for somebody becoming a bit more inventive. And one of the things we're looking at at the moment is a company that's actually trying to build boats out of recycled polyethylene and polypropylene, which actually is quite resilient material and you can shape it into some interesting forms, but it's completely recyclable at the end of its lifestyle. And because it's not painted, it's only pigmented, that means actually it's easy to handle. So there may be some scope for novel materials to actually come into how into the market in the future. That's very interesting. Well, we'll cover it all in uh, the pages of Waterways World. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating talking to you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Bobby. For 25 years, the ABC Leisure Group has been at the forefront of the waterways leisure industry. With 15 strategically placed marinas around the UK, it has hundreds of moorings with modern facilities and a range of benefits. ABC also runs a successful and competitive boat brokerage business. See abcboatsales.com, as well as over 200 luxury hire boats and day boats. Visit abcboathire.com. Furthermore, it offers a range of land-based holiday accommodation, including waterside holiday cottages and caravan parks. Visit abcholidaycottages.com.